This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint. Shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. I'm Denise Nakano, and on this episode of Flashpoint, we focus on racial progress, issues of systemic racism, racial injustice, and race relations that remain front and center in our country and in the city we love. I think there's been a lot of tension here in Philadelphia. We hear from those trying to make it better. I'm encouraged every single day by individuals who don't look like me. And one man reveals how he emerged from a life as a neo-Nazi white supremacist to fight against racial hate. We need to make a stand together to fix it, and we can do it. We highlight an African-American woman blazing a trail of firsts in the food and beverage industry. Being the first black woman at Spruce Tree Harbor Park made headlines, and that opened the door to so many other opportunities. It's a half hour you need to hear on Flashpoint. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Denise Nakano. The head of the ACLU is focused on raising awareness about race through national strategies, bringing the conversation to the next level. Sheridan Howard talks to our newsmaker, Reggie Shuford, the executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania, about the ongoing struggles in Philly race relations. Philadelphia has had its own complicated history with regard to race. Then fast forward to 2020, where a series of national protests calling out police brutality and systemic racism proved present-day race relations are indeed no exception. That was the shared consensus of Gia, Chris, and Shanti, three people I spoke to in Rittenhouse Park. In my friend groups, it's definitely opened up a dialogue with the tension that there is in the country. I just feel like black and brown people have been more empowered in Philadelphia to support our own, advertise our own. Due to the death of George Floyd and just the social political climate. Systemic racism, white supremacy is becoming more prevalent. There is an awareness growing in Philadelphia. We are not seeing this theory of equality actually happening. And so I'm excited for folks that have more power and influence to step up. Reggie Shuford, executive director of the American Civil Liberties Union, says the awareness must translate into action. But is that what's happening? Thank you so much, Reggie, for being here. It's my pleasure to be here. Reggie, as a black man, as a lawyer and the head of the ACLU here in Philadelphia, what do you see happening here with regard to race relations? The relationship between black people and white people has always been fraught. I think there's been a lot of tension here in Philadelphia, but everywhere, really. So those issues have always been there. So whether they've gotten worse, there's a case to be made for yes. But there's also the reality of more technology being available to us that just shows what has been happening all along. But the case to be made for relations getting worse is a pretty strong case. For example, one of the things I've heard and wouldn't necessarily argue with is that the public support for Black Lives Matter is less now than it was before George Floyd was murdered. And I think what it does say, frankly, is throughout history, you know, the relationship between Black people and white people has been stable. But then there have been other times where it's been 
really, really far. And history will show over and over again when Black people flex their political or economic or cultural muscle, then it is met with backlash. You think about all of the protests that happened during the Freedom Summer last year, then you would understand why if history is in the indication, there's some backlash against that. But even more broadly, thinking about Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Act and the election of Barack Obama, all of those periods in our history were met with backlash. And so I think there's a strong case to be made that now seems especially fraught in terms of the relationship between Black communities, white communities, and other communities. But in Philadelphia, it's always been block the block. So that tells you now that there was something already brewing. Philadelphia was already a hot spot when it came to racial tensions and maybe George Floyd and everything else allowed it to kind of play out. And I think that has right. some underlying things to do with policing. I think it's a really good question. And I think for a very, very long time, policing in Philadelphia has been deeply problematic. Um, and the ACLU of Pennsylvania has been engaged in police reform work for many decades at this point. A case that we have that's actually 10 years old at this point against the Philadelphia police involves CPD's stop and frisk policies. So it's now a dec- it's now 10 years old. And so that advocacy has produced some results, but what it hasn't produced is a decrease in racial disparities. So there are fewer stops happening, fewer frisks happening, but the racial disparities persist. And so it is clear something needs to be done. Just this week, we announced that we had reached agreement in our case that um, the Philadelphia Police Department is going to implement a pilot program in Northwest Philadelphia in which they are not enforcing petty crime. So if they see somebody even like smoking pot or if they see somebody doing something what we would consider a petty crime, they won't arrest that person. They'll tell them to stop if it's an open alcohol container, if it's a noise complaint, if it's disorderly conduct, they'll tell them to stop doing that. And only if the person refused to comply will they stop and frisk and potentially arrest. But what we know, all of our work, and just even anecdotally, is that those small contact between police and citizens often escalate into something much more serious. And so if we can minimize the number Number of those contacts, I think that is a really important solution, at least in part, to the issues that we've seen with the over-policing of Black communities. And what does policing look like that might be acceptable and not problematic? Well, just go to your nearest suburb, right? And then that's your answer to how Black communities should be policed. And those racial disparities with regard to petty crimes is exactly how young Black and brown men get entered into the system. And once they're in the system, they're now a target. And it reinforces, right? It's, yeah, it's like they're all always there, right? So they're not letting you kind of live your life and like kind of make the mistakes that everybody else is allowed to make without the police hovering over them. And then when we think about the school to prison pipeline, it's not just in our communities, it's in the schools that we attend, right? And the police presence is just, it's everywhere, right? And we need to rein it in some. We need to, what I call right size the police. So this reminds me of the incident where two young black men, businessmen, were doing work at a Starbucks and were not only asked to leave, but the police were called. Yeah. And so I think that was happening at a moment in our country where lots of folks were calling the police on Black people who were just trying to go about their daily lives doing what people do. It forces one to realize that not only is the presence of police and 
Black lives excessive, but also would be police deputizing themselves to act like police and then to call the police on Black people. Where are we free to kind of be who we are? And that speaks to a broader cultural concern about this cloud of suspicion that being Black always carries with it. And then number two, the stress that accompanies like the knowledge that you have to police yourself. And so you have to really rein in your emotions. You can't talk too loud. You can't. And it takes a toll when you're not able to be your authentic self. Right. It reframed things. All of a sudden, there were bridges between policing, policy, legislation, and the hearts and minds of people. Those things started to somehow change. And I think they started to evolve. And that was pre-George Floyd. George Floyd was able to open up the floodgates. But I think there was a starting point, especially here in Philadelphia. And that also leads me to gentrification and what that means. What has happened in Philadelphia with regard to gentrification is is shocking. It really does undermine the notion of intergenerational. You're forced to leave the place that you grew up, perhaps, the neighbors and friendship that you've made. And then it it just contributes to this feeling of being kind of dislodged from what you know, this feeling of like, like I'm not able to plant my roots anywhere because um, they can be so easily supplanted. And so what is mine? Like what, as I walk through the world, what can I have, right, that is mine that I can hold on to, but it can be taken from you at any moment. And it makes it hard to really feel like you're contributing to your community or that you have a share in it, right? And this is the pattern that we're seeing then. This is the single thread that runs through everything we were just talking about, being dislodged and feeling as though the rug has been ripped out from under you. At every turn in all of these instances, it's about not being able to get our foot in as a people. What is the ACLU doing now? Well, so I, first, I want to just uh, lift up your point about how that thread in virtually every aspect of Black life, there's something that can dislodge or force us to relocate in some manner. So the ACLU is doing a number of things. I'm happy to say we are fighting for police reform, which is something that we've already talked about, right? We're talking about right-sizing police so that their presence in Black communities doesn't loom larger than it does in other communities, but do so in a way that is equitable and do so in partnership with communities that have been there forever. Again, more broadly than police reform, just criminal justice reform, right? And something that we also have always done is protect the right to vote. As I talked about earlier, that pattern of backlash that happens when Black people flex their political muscle uh, certainly has happened in in, in Pennsylvania, when you think about Harrisburg and all the voter suppression efforts underway as we speak post-2020 presidential election, we are deeply, deeply committed as an organization to protecting the right to vote, which again, when voting is suppressed, disproportionately affects Black uh, individuals and Black communities. So that leads me to civic engagement. Going forward, what does that look like, Reggie? It means exactly what we're talking about, which is utilizing that really fundamental right to vote and doing it not just every four years for the presidential election. But frankly, municipal elections are more important because the power of the purse is local. Quite frankly, the most powerful person in any community is the district attorney. And the majority of people don't even vote in the DA election. I'm saying vote like your life depends on it. That's how you should be civically engaged. Thank you so much for joining us, Reggie. Thank you for having me. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donorswant.org. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Denise Nakano. We take a look at racial progress, how far we've come and how far we have left to go. Now, to talk about the progress or maybe even the lack of progress in race relations, we have Chad Dion Lassiter, the executive director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, and Frank Mink, a former neo-Nazi turned anti-racist activist. Thank you both for joining us on Flashpoint. Thank you for having us. In the years since the murder of George Floyd, widespread global protests reignited conversations about race relations and also racial justice. But I wanted to share with you a recent Gallup poll that says 57% of Americans believe that race relations are at their worst point since pollsters began tracking sentiment 20 years ago. Chad, how do you view the state of race relations now? And do you believe they've actually gotten worse? I think it's more along the continuum of, of both and in a sense that they have both improved and some things have remained the same. Uh, We still have challenges as it relates to structural and systemic racism. Uh, The George Floyd incident and the horrific tragedy showed us how not to get seduced by the black-white binary. That was a global and historical uh, protest. You had people on all sides of the gender line and color line simply saying Black Lives Matter, no justice, no peace, no racist police. Uh, But you also had individuals who bought into uh, white victimization. They borrowed from uh, Donald Trump and the Trumpism ideology that the election was stolen. We see the ushering in of voter suppression. And now the recent debates of critical race theory, where most of the legislators who are putting forth the bills to say, simply say, let's ban critical race theory, they themselves don't know what critical race theory is. Critical race theory is not taught in K through 12 in, in the majority of our schools throughout the landscape of our democracy. It's barely taught on college campuses. So we do see some challenges, but we still have forms of institutional, systemic and structural racism in America. And Frank, you have quite the backstory here, growing up in South and Southwest Philadelphia and becoming a neo-Nazi skinhead who you're not today. But tell us more about your journey. You know, I grew up, to be honest, I felt marginalized. What I truly meant is that I didn't feel that I mattered, right? I was between two households with father and a mother who both had some issues, that parents had issues. And I was a kid who wound up getting put in an all-Black school in Southwest Philly, where, you know, I'm getting beat at home, and then I go to get to school, and I got fist fight at school every day. I had nowhere to turn. And um, when I got around these groups, these men that were from, maybe they were older boys to me. I was 13, going on 14. These were older boys up in the Lancaster, Pennsylvania area who wanted to hear me talk about what it's like growing up around black people because they don't know what it's, they knew what it's like growing up around Amish people. So when they would talk to me, I was like this little city expert kid growing up in a really rough neighborhood. And I remember I just enjoyed that belonging. I enjoyed them asking me about what's it like growing up around black people. And I'm sure they didn't say the word black because my parents never asked me, what's it like? How's life? So that was my connection in. Again, you really did have that hate in your heart. And so you're trying to explain to us how you really changed your life around and became an activist against racism. Yeah, I mean, I have to. If I I believe in a one true loving God, then we all should stand up for other children of God. Us getting along together is, again, us standing up for one another. I felt that last summer. I felt where people knew we were just standing for each other because we watched civil servants publicly execute someone for nine and a half minutes in front of us. And so all of us standing up for that is where this forgiveness starts. It's where that we start to say, you know, 
there's a mutual love and respect and empathy there that we're standing up for other Americans who are being abused by our civil servants. It's, it's what's going to heal the country. Now, people appear to have gotten more emboldened to express racist or racially insensitive views. There's been a wave of discrimination against Asian Americans during the pandemic ahead of the 20th anniversary of September 11th, which saw an uptick in anti-Muslim attacks. So, Chad, what needs to change in our country and how is education playing a role in teaching us to become a less racist society? Well, first and foremost, I think what's foundational to that question is, is that we need to have a collaborative effort from a federal, from a state and a local perspective with regards to anti-hate laws. In addition to that, what we need to be really doing is making sure that we do more trainings around unconscious bias training, uh, but also anti-racism training. It gets to that racial elephant in a room of white privilege, white supremacy, white nationalism, and the mere fact that whiteness allows the mob to get off with impunity, while those of us who get mobbed, we lose our lives. And even when you lose your life, uh, you're being guilty from the grave, i.e., Eric Garner, i.e. Michael Brown, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, most recently George Floyd. I think what's very encouraging is that we do see that intersectionality. Stop Asian hate movement can intersect with Black Lives Matter, the LGBT movement. And so when you look at all of these intersecting, that intersectionality is very important because there are universities now who are speaking back to the fallacies of Americanization, of Anglo conformity, the fallacies of acculturation to simply say, America is beautiful, but it's also solely. America is a land of freedom, prosperity, and opportunity, uh, but also there are people, Black, White, Native American, uh, Jewish, uh, Native American, Indigenous, and multiple others who had to prove themselves to be resilient under the threat of white supremacy, systemic and structural racism. So I think courses on racism, and I know people who are listening may say, what is a course gonna do? What is a book gonna do? It's gonna do a lot. The first educational process is to unlearn that you're racist, right? And when we talk about white privilege, Frank is absolutely right. Doesn't mean that Frank didn't grow up with trauma, generational, or he didn't grow up with uh, lack of opportunities or didn't live in a catchment area that was not rife with Uh, environmental racism or forms of economic injustice. It just means that pigmentation separates things. The institutional structures structurally and systemically is what we need to start talking about. And young people are up to the task, Denise. The form of education is to bring about a means of making individuals citizens of the world. We shouldn't be banning anything. We should be saying it's both and. We're a beautiful country and we have some pillars of contradictions. And the beautiful thing about our democracy is that we should be able to talk about them with truth, love and kindness. All right. Now, Frank, how do you suggest we fight against racism, much like you find yourself doing on the front lines as an activist? Uh, again, I think for all of us, it's that, that individual time that we stand up for our neighbor. Once we go back to that, stop being so narcissistically delusional and, and, and start standing up for one another. And have you both become more optimistic that you're seeing more people use their voice and stand up in the past year or so since the death of George Floyd? For me, I'm a prisoner of hope. I'm encouraged every single day by individuals who don't look like me, who are standing up, uh, not just for the anthology of police brutality by some police officers, uh, but for all of humanity. Uh, Those individuals who are speaking up, writing op-ed pieces, running for political office, running to be on a school board in their catchment area, 
uh, working in a space of LGBT, uh, ridding the democracy of hate. I I'm very, very hopeful uh, of the future, uh, albeit this Gallup poll, uh, but I'm also mindful not to get in caught up into polls and data because uh, on the ground, there are more people like Frank and I who don't look like one another, uh, but there are similarities and those similarities is our hearts. The similarities is our passion to make sure that this democracy moves from being somewhat fractured to becoming whole. Now, it's one thing to be non-racist, but what steps can we all take to become more anti-racist? Great question. I think fundamentally what you have to do to become anti-racist is to unlearn the way that you have been socialized uh, to believe that you're in a position of superiority. I think it's an ever-evolving process. I think that we're so quick to want to say, I want to be anti-racist tomorrow, but through this aspect of gradualism, every single day we should be engaged in a form of self-reflection, dealing with our isms, recognizing that we all come to a context with a pretext of the way that we see certain people. And then I think that it's a level of humanity. And so I think that there are multiple things that people should do. I think there are workshops, there are there journaling. I think there's, you know, being with people of like mind, Frank and myself, you know, looking at some of the workshops that the Anti-Defamation League has, the Urban League has, the Southern Poverty Law Center. And so I, I don't think there's one particular thing that a person can do, but I think ultimately there has to be an honest admission that, hey, if I'm racist, I want to do something about it. A lot of people are in denial. They say, no, no, that's just effective prejudice. No, no, I, I'm really not a bigot. I really don't discriminate, you know, or no, I just, I'm looking at it because I was told that that's how Black people are, or Latinx people are, or Asian American Pacific Islander people are, or LGBT people. But to, in fact, become uh, uh, anti-racist, you have to be willing to uproot the racism in yourself and then do the hard work of doing it so much so in the policies uh, that, that permeate uh, throughout the landscape of, of, of America. Frank, you're a poster child for this in that you started out in one place and you're now on the other side of that. Absolutely. If I can change, anyone can change. I, you know, I wrote a book years ago about my growing up and getting into this called The Autobiography of Recovering Skinhead. It's about keeping my ego in check keeping my fears in check. And I have to find out the right things about myself to know that I don't need to judge the rest of the world because we're all children of God. So, I mean, what am I doing? We have to realize that the real patriotism is, again, standing up for others, especially ones that don't look like you, and start supporting one another. All right, so now is the time to speak out against racism and racially motivated violence. We can no longer just stand on the sideline. Chad Dion Lassiter and Frank Mink, Thank you so much for taking the time and being our guests on Flashpoint. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot Home Care. You're listening to Flashpoint. I'm Denise Nakano, and welcome back. 
we highlight a changemaker who is making her mark as a high-profile player in the food and beverage industry. Her name, Sharice McGill. Antoinette Lee brings us her story. Hey, y'all. KYW's Antoinette Lee here. And this week, I'm highlighting a Black-owned business owner who's really shown some grit and grace over the past year. Now, I have to admit, I've been to Cherry Street Pier a million times and passed right by this food truck without knowing the story or the person behind it. And maybe you have to, or maybe you've tried them. Either way, this woman is taking French toast to a whole new level. Cherise McGill is a history maker, or should I say her story maker. Known for her French toast bites, McGill is the first black woman to own and operate a food truck at Spruce Street Harbor and the first black woman to create a beer in the state of Pennsylvania. Being the first black woman at Spruce Street Harbor Park in its six-year existence at the time last year made headlines, and that opened the door to so many other opportunities. Now she has a second vendor location at Cherry Street Pier. Her French toast bites spice is also on shelves. She created a spice coffee and her beer is sold at 100 different locations. It's a lot to trailblaze. You know, there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And we have to be like a model vendor. And we pride ourselves on it. The Temple and St. Joe's grad has become a trailblazer in the food and beverage industry. Much of it all over the last year during the pandemic. It all started with humble beginnings at a farmer's market. Everything was built off my daughter's lemonade stand for 15 weeks. I would pick her up. We would go to her commercial kitchen and she would squeeze 88 lemons to make 10 gallons of lemonade to sell the farmer's market. Her $5,000 is what got us into Christmas Village, and it's just been growing from there. McGill says growing a business during the pandemic has taught her to stay ready. You know, we didn't start seeing funding until the social injustices were highlighted with black businesses. We didn't start seeing it until after George Floyd, and I'm very public about that, and I have a very bittersweet relationship with the pandemic, with the uprisings that happened last summer. Because when we opened at Spruce Street, the country was inside out. July 2020, the country was inside out. So it was just a very interesting time. Time and we were able, able to persevere. We got to keep that Delta variant under control because we never know. We may have to rely back on our pantry sales, the spice, the coffee, the beer. For now, you can visit her food trucks at Penn's Landing. And here's another scoop just between us. Working on another segment of the pantry. I can't say right now, but we're really excited about it. It would be another first black woman to do dot, dot, dot. So we're working on that for the fall. Now you can find Charisse and her French Toast Bites food truck at either of the Penn's Landing locations. Again, she's at Spruce Street Harbor and Cherry Street Pier. Or you can find them on Instagram at Local Artisan Foods. Again, that handle is local with a K, Artisan Foods. That'll do it for this week's edition of Flashpoint. I'll leave you with a quote from Angela Y. Davis. In a racist society, it's not enough to be non-racist. We must be anti-racist. For Sheridan Howard, Antoinette Lee, and our producer, Ariane Fulcher, I'm Denise Nakano. Thanks for listening. Remember, life's an adventure. Thanks for joining me on this journey. We'll catch it next time. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives.